Lord, your grace is indeed so marvelous, and we want to see your face. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see more of you today. Help us to see more of your grace in the heart of your mediator, Moses, as he pleads for more grace and more grace. So thank you that you do pardon and you cleanse within, not because we get our act together, but because of your character that is full of grace and mercy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome back. Today we're in Exodus 33 and 34, where Moses prays, Lord, show me your glory. Now, last week in Exodus 32, we saw the catastrophic sin of idolatry. We saw the loving intercessory heart of Moses even before he went back down the mountain. Remember, he offered to give his life for the people to, you know, to spare them. But as a sinful human, that was not possible. Atonement would have to wait until the better Moses comes. And we saw the mercy of God in that he didn't destroy all of them. He forgives them. He reminds them of his faithfulness to his covenant promises. He promises them protection and prosperity, a land flowing with milk and honey. But he made the stunning announcement that he can't go with them. He said, I will not go among you lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. So just like back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, away from God's presence, the Lord says, because of your sin, I can't go with you. So put yourself in the people's place. Would you take this deal? It reminds me of a question that John Piper asked in his book, God is the Gospel. He said this question. He said, if you could have heaven with no sickness, and with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? If you were an ordinary Israelite, would you be happy to go to the promised land, even if God wouldn't go with you? To the people's credit, in verse 4, they said, no, no. When they heard this disastrous word, they mourned, right? And so Moses then intercedes for the people. He, God can't go with them to be in their midst. The people mourn, and the question then remains from last week, can this be fixed so my aim this morning is that you will see the glorious grace of our Redeemer and the heart of God's mediator, Moses, as he pleads for grace after grace for the people and to know that God forgives not because we get our act together, but because of his character, his grace, and his mercy. And so this passage this morning is like a chiasm, and you know what that is, right? It's like a cheeseburger, okay? It's like a, this passage is like a juicy cheeseburger. And we're going to begin this morning with the bun, okay? Moses is going outside the camp, okay? That's where the tent of meeting is, and he's going to speak with the Lord. And what is happening at the very end of Exodus 34 in the very last verse? 
Moses is speaking with the Lord again at the tent outside the camp. So the, the, this is the bun, okay? Okay, he's outside the camp. Now, in between, we're going to hear a conversation between Moses and the Lord that goes on all through chapter 33 and 34. And we're going to see Moses give three requests and then another three requests. And I'm calling these requests the cheese, the lettuce, the pickles, the bacon, and the tomato that's in the burger, okay? This is the surrounding it. But in the juicy center, we have the meat, okay? We have the grace and the glory of our Redeemer. So that's, that's my image. I hope you're not too hungry this morning. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so these verses about the tent of meeting might seem out of place, but keep in mind that we skipped over from the covenant confirmation ceremony of Exodus 24 when I taught last time all the way to, to last week when we jumped to chapter 32. There was a lot of material that we skipped. And in the next three lessons, you're going to start next week, we're going to cover those instructions for building the tabernacle, the dwelling place of the Lord where they would worship him. And so God had intended to permanently come and to dwell in the midst of the people, in the middle of the camp, with the people camped all around. The tabernacle would be where the sacrifices of atonement would happen. And the Ark of the Covenant would be in the Holy of Holies, right in the very spiritual center of the camp. So here we see a temporary tent that was outside the camp. Did you see that? We see this three times that to pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. The Lord, you know, everybody, Moses, he would go out to the tent of the meeting, which is outside the camp. Very, very clear that it's not in the middle anymore, right? So God's gracious presence was not able to dwell inside the camp because of their sin. But there is still hope that this can be fixed. Why? Because Moses is still talking with the Lord, right? Moses is their mediator. They're talking face-to-face -face as friends. And note that they're not on the mountaintop anymore. There's something that's changed here. Where are they? The pillar of cloud would descend. Do you see that? It would descend and stand at the entrance to the tent. So here's more grace that God is coming down to meet with Moses outside the camp. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And because of Jesus, who went outside of the camp, we don't have to. We have immediate access to God through the Spirit who sets up his tent of meeting where? Inside of us. You saw that in Ephesians 3, right? That, that Christ is going to dwell in our hearts through faith. So we have the privilege, like Moses, of speaking with the Lord as our friend and hearing the Lord. How do we hear him? Through his word. What a privilege we have. All right, number two, the grace and the glory that we see in verses 12 through 23. Moses makes three requests here, and they're all related to grace. The first request is he wants knowledge. He needs some help in leading the people. So he says, see, he says, you say to me, bring up this people. You see the difference here? This people? What does he say later in the verse? Your people, okay? But say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. Yet you have said, 
I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. So repeatedly we see this idea of knowing, showing. Okay, the fact that God knows Moses by name implies an intimate, special knowledge that he belongs to the Lord. And Moses wanted to know this God who knew him by name. So the other thing that we see repeated here over and over is this idea of favor in my sight. And we're going to see this more in the chapter, but we see it three times here in this section alone. Now this word could be translated grace. So Moses appeals boldly and directly for more of God's grace and favor because of God's grace on him. He couldn't appeal on the basis of the people's obedience, could he? The people had already failed. So here, Moses demonstrated a desire to know the Lord and his ways. And according to Psalm 103, God did make known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Now, Moses also demonstrates here a principle for prayer. Moses, how does he present his case? What did he say here? He said, yet you have said. Okay? He prays on the basis of God's word and what God has said. He was learning the logic of intercession, that the most persuasive prayers argue from the premises that God has revealed in his word. That's a quote from Phil Riken. Well, we should pray like Moses. We need to know God's word in order to know him and to pray according to this word. So we too have found favor. We've found grace in God's sight. But it's not because of anything that we have done. It's because of Jesus Christ. God has chosen us. God has redeemed us and purposed to be glorified in us. So God's answer here to Moses is all of grace. He says, he says, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. You remember back in Exodus 3, God had promised this very same thing. He promised to go with Moses. Isaiah also, who foretold our Messiah, do you remember the name that Isaiah used? Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. That is Jesus, who is always with us. And what did Jesus promise to do for us? He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right, that is, that is Jesus, his grace and his glory. Now the second request that Moses makes here is he says, go with us, we need your presence. Now, this might be a bit confusing because didn't the Lord just promise that he would go with, right? So did Moses not hear or did he ignore what God was saying? But Moses here, he wants more grace because God had promised in the singular to be with Moses individually. And Moses is saying, okay, you said you'd be with me, but please not just with me. I want you to go with us. I want you to go with us as a people. And what is his argument here? I thought it's very interesting, isn't it? He argues on the basis of God's glorious presence being a distinction of the people of God. Did you see that? He says again, 
distinct and he says your people okay he's he's hearkening back to the covenant promises of god that these people would be god's people he said what would make them distinct is not their land not their personal qualities but what sets them apart from other people is that god is going with them not just an angel going before them to to take away all the trouble and to fight for them so Moses, in effect, is saying here, if you don't go with us, God, we don't want to go. All right? And then God answers. He says, this very thing that I, that you have, this very thing that you have spoken, he says, I will do. Why? For you, Moses, have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. That's why God is going to go with them, because Moses, the mediator, has found grace in God's sight. And this points to Jesus, who is our better mediator. He does for us what Moses did for the people of Israel. Our salvation is based on the fact that God takes pleasure in Jesus. Do you remember at Jesus' baptism when they heard the voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Moses' third request here is for glory. This is a bold, audacious request, isn't it? Moses had seen more glory than anyone else. He's had a taste, but he wants more. He wants to see the Lord like he has talked to the Lord face to face. And so God graciously answers, you want to see my glory? Let me tell you about my freedom and my mercy, my goodness and my grace. He says here, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name the Lord that's Yahweh his covenant name and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy so let's talk about God's goodness here for a minute have you ever had the thought I know God is sovereign but is he being good to me I think maybe all of us could confess we we wonder that Our pastors have done a really great job of encouraging us from the book of Daniel how God is sovereign. And we know the end of the story and we can trust in him. Well, God's glory in this section is revealed in the way he dispenses his mercy, his freedom, that none of us deserve mercy, but God shows mercy to whoever he desires. God's sovereignty in showing mercy to whoever he will is essential in defining what it means for God to be God. He's perfect in his wisdom, in his judgment. He's perfect in his mercy and his grace. And it's this God of glory, goodness, and grace that's going to go with Moses and these undeserving people. He's going to show mercy after mercy to them. God says, Moses... There's a limit, though, to what you can see. A full-on sight of God in his glory would kill him. And so God protected Moses. Think of the warnings that we have not to look at the sun. Even in an eclipse where it's partially hidden, we would go blind if we, if we stared at the sun, right? So in the same way, God is saying, you can't see my face and live. And so what God said is, he said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft, 
of the rock, and I will cover you there with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The song I almost chose for this morning was, He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. That is so beautiful, because do you remember from a few weeks back when the people were thirsty, they had no water to drink, and God said to Moses, go and stand before the rock and strike it. And what happened? That rock was cleft. The waters came flowing out, those waters of, you know, living water, fresh water to drink, and we saw how that pointed to Christ. So this Moses is hiding in this cleft of the rock that points us to Jesus. And Colossians 3 tells us, my life is hidden with Christ in God. That's a picture of our salvation. Okay, we might not be able to see God face to face, but we will sometime. There's coming a day when we will see our risen Savior with our very own physical eyes. 1 Corinthians 13 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Are you longing to see him? In the meantime, be bold like Moses. Ask God to show you as much of his glory as you can bear. All right, number three, more grace here in Exodus 34, 1 through 9. We're going to see grace in new tablets and grace in God's name. Back in chapter 32, Moses came down the mountain and he smashed the first two tablets, and that was symbolic of the covenant that had been broken. And now, in grace, the Lord is inviting Moses back up the mountain for about the seventh time. He was in pretty good shape for an 80-year-old, I think. Okay, so he brings these tablets up the mountain. These are going to be new covenant documents, right, with the very same words on them. And so think of it this way. When Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God, he's representing the people down below, okay? But when he comes back down the mountain, he's representing the Lord to the people. That's the job of the mediator. He's going between them. And now we've come to what I said is the meat of our juicy cheeseburger in this passage. This in the middle here is amazing. Grace upon grace, the glory of the Lord as he unpacks his gracious covenant name. So we see here, in verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. Isn't that beautiful? Did you notice that? God stood with him there. And he proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. That's his gracious covenant name, Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. What an amazing description of the Lord. So rather than make a visual appearance, the Lord declares his attributes, and Moses falls, he bows in worship. I love this quote by Phil Riken. You have this in your handout. Moses wanted to see God. And so God said, all right, come up here and I'll show you who I am. But if you really want to know me, it's not about seeing what I look like. 
It's about knowing my infinite perfections, especially as I display them in the salvation, in the salvation of sinners. Now, verses, these verses here that I read, these are some of the most famous verses in the Old Testament, and it's repeated throughout the Bible. To know God's glory, we need to understand these attributes, his name, his nature. So if you didn't have time this week, at the end of this lesson was a chart that listed all these attributes with extra scriptures that you could go to. So maybe you want to prayerfully go through that at another time if you didn't have time this week. Okay, we're going to go through a couple of these terms very quickly because of time. But the first one he mentions is merciful. This is most always used to refer to God, and this term stresses his deep compassion for his own, like a mother for her child. And this, is, this means not getting the punishment that we deserve. Next, God is gracious. This is used only in reference to God, and it's usually used along with the term for mercy. It means getting the redemption that we don't deserve. It's undeserved favor. Uh, Maxie Dunham tells a story of a woman who took a friend with her when she went to the photographer to get her picture taken. The beauty parlor had done its best for her, and she took her seat in the studio, and she fixed her pose, and while the photographer was adjusting his lights in preparation for taking the shot, she said to him, now be sure to do me justice. The friend who had accompanied her said with a twinkle in her eye, my dear, what you need is not justice, but mercy. <laughs> yeah. And this is what we all need, isn't it? And this is not just in front of the camera, right? But before, before the eyes of God, we all need his mercy. If we're to be saved at all, it's because of his mercy and his grace. All right, now God is slow to anger. Another way this is translated is long-suffering. And this refers to God's immense patience. When he takes action against sin, he does it righteously. He doesn't just lose his temper like us. His steadfast love. This, the Hebrew word is hesed. This is his covenant love, his loving kindness, his unfailing love, mercy, his loyalty. This is his active, never failing, always and forever love and devotion to his own people. He keeps his promise to love us without any boundaries or restraint. All right, his faithfulness. This can also be translated steadfastness. This is the assurance that God will never fail. He goes on to say that he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. The word here is that he bears our sin. He lifts it. He carries it away. That's what he does for us. And then he closes with, but who will by no means clear the guilty. All right? This is echoing the second commandment. God takes sin seriously, and he will punish the unrepentant. And we're left with a little bit of tension here. Just as he said he was willing to forgive, but unwilling to clear the guilty. But he is a God of perfect justice. And ultimately, this points us to Jesus, who took God's wrath for us, bearing our sin, lifting it up, taking it away, and then giving us his righteousness. So God poured out his perfect justice at the cross when he was both just and the justifier. Israel needed a God like this. We need a God like this. 
And this perfectly describes Jesus, right? Moses had pleaded to see God's glory and he couldn't bear to see it, so God hid him in the cleft of the rock. But in God's perfect timing, he sent Jesus, who was the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And what does the Bible say of him? We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, right? Full of grace. That should remind you of Exodus 33 and 34. Full of truth, that he is faithful and true, that he's always righteous and just. Jesus is God. And just as the Lord was proclaiming his name before Moses, he was really proclaiming the gospel. This is Jesus to come. That is who I am, Moses. This is Jesus. I want to take you forward to Luke 9 for a minute, where Jesus goes up the mountain. Does that sound familiar after our study in Exodus? And he went up to pray, and he was accompanied by Peter and James and John, just like Moses was accompanied by Joshua and Nadab and Abihu, right? And what do they see when they go up the mountain? It says, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. This sounds familiar from this passage, doesn't it? God's face was what Moses was not allowed to see. But now the disciples get to see Jesus' face. But then it goes on in, verse, uh, in Luke 9, verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him. Do you remember who showed up? Moses! Moses got to see Jesus' face, right? And Elijah, right? Who appeared in glory and spoke of his, that's Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Okay, so this is like mind-blowing, isn't it? So Moses and Elijah came to talk to Jesus about his departure. What's even more mind-blowing is, do you know what the Greek word is for departure is here? Anybody know? Exodus. Yeah, the word is Exodus. Jesus was speaking about his Exodus. So we have Moses, who's representing the law. We have Elijah, who's representing the prophets. And they're making room for Jesus, just like John the Baptist, right? What faded into the background when Jesus came on the scene. Jesus was about to inaugurate the new covenant when he goes to the cross his departure, his exodus. And then bless his heart, Peter, when he sees this glorious sight, what does he do? He makes a suggestion that they build a tent for Moses. Does this, does this sound like exodus? Yeah. He wants to build these tents or tabernacles for Moses and Elijah, but then they hear a voice from heaven. Just as the Lord's booming voice was heard by the people, you know, of Israel back at Mount Sinai, this is what they hear in Luke 9.35. This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. Make way for Jesus. Listen to him. His exodus is not just about dying on the cross. He does that. He's the Passover lamb. But it's also about his glory, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, him providing a way of escape for us, for our exodus, from our slavery to sin, into a new life of freedom in him. Now Moses goes on and he pleads for more grace. 
Oh, the faithfulness of Moses in intercessory prayer. I think this, this section also highlights the mercy of God who is willing to forgive based on Moses' appeals that he's making. And I think it also points so beautifully to Jesus who stands before the throne of God on our behalf so that there's no grounds for condemnation. And then we read in Hebrews 7, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's our Jesus, our intercessor. All right, now in verse 9 of Exodus here, we see, let the Lord go in the midst of us for it is a stiff-necked people. So he's pleading for God's presence despite what he knows is the people's inclination to disobey and rebel and sin and on and on and on. And do you remember in Acts 7, Stephen says the same thing to his accusers. He says, um, he calls them stiff-necked people that always resist the Holy Spirit. Now ultimately, this describes all of us, doesn't it? Every one of us. For the mind that is set on the flesh and ho is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's Romans 8. And the only remedy is God's grace to us through the Spirit by giving us new life. He also goes on here to plead for God's pardon. He says, pardon our iniquity and our sin. You see the pronouns here and how important they are. Moses is including himself in this, in this plea. And now when we get to Daniel 9, which is going to be after Easter because we're going to be taking a break in Daniel during the Easter season, uh, we see an example of this kind of prayer. And I wanted to read this to you now so that when we come to it, you're going to have these bells going off in your head and you're going to think about Moses and Jesus, okay? This is what Daniel prays in Daniel 9. I pray to the Lord my God and make confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened. We have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. Do not delay for your own sake, oh, my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So you see, Moses really was foreshadowing the prayers of future saints like Daniel who would plead on behalf of the people for God's sake to do this to be faithful to his name and his steadfast love. Now, in Psalm 99, we see the psalmist praising God for his answer to Moses' prayer here. In Psalm 99, verses 6 through 9, it says, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O oh, Lord our God, you answered them. You are a forgiving God to them. 
but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Okay? I'm just blown away. In my quiet times, I've been in Psalms recently, and I would just encourage you, start maybe even if you have Psalm 99 and go to Psalm like 106 or so, you know, there's so many references to Exodus, it will blow your mind. All right, that's just an aside. All right, number three, Moses pleads for God's possession. He said, take us as your, take us for your inheritance. We belong to the Lord. There is nothing that can separate us from his love and his presence. These requests are crucial. God's presence, God's pardon, God's possession. And I want you to see something else about the structure of this book. You may not realize that Exodus devotes 13 chapters to the construction of the tabernacle, and we haven't even gotten there yet, right? We skipped over seven chapters, Exodus 25 through 31, of the detailed instructions for building it. Last week, then, was the episode of the golden calf, and this week on God's grace and glory. But what comes next in Exodus 35 starts the next six chapters of how they were faithful in actually carrying out that command to build the tabernacle. And so the people do faithfully obey that. So you can see what what's is at stake here in chapter 33 and 34 because the tabernacle is going to be the dwelling place of God. And if God doesn't go with them, what's the point? Why should they build the tabernacle? So Moses is pleading, Lord, we need your presence. You've got to come with us. All right, number four. God's gracious renewal of the covenant. God says he is going to reconfirm this covenant, renew the covenant, and this is pure grace. Repeatedly, the people had said, all that you have said, God, we will do. But they've demonstrated their untransformed hearts by their complete failure to keep the covenant. And this is a theme that we'll see throughout scripture, this inability to obey and God's abounding grace. And once again, God forgives them, not because they get their act together, but because of his character, his goodness, his grace, his mercy. And what reason does he give? He did it to display his glory, right? His marvels, his work, these awesome things that he is going to do among him. He's doing this for his glory. It's not just for their sake, but he wants them to see the Lord and the wonders that he was doing. So he goes on to say much of what he said in Exodus 19 through 24. He said, you are my people. You are to reflect me in the way you live your life. You're to be like me in your character, different from the people around you. Don't go making deals with your enemies. Don't worship their gods. In fact, get rid of all their images and those altars that are on the high places. Don't worship any other god. I'm your god, and I'm jealous for your affection. And then he says, we get to the section here where Moses is then glowing with grace, the radiance of Moses' face. Moses sought God's glory. We see a glimpse, or he sees a glimpse while he's hiding in the cleft of the rock, and this changes Moses. His face would glow after his meetings with God. He radiated. Uh, the people were so afraid. Now Psalm 35, or 34, 5 tells us that those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. As believers, that's us. We radiate or shine God's glory because Jesus is inside of us. Do you remember the sweet 
passage in Acts 4 that talks about uh, the boldness of Peter and John and how the others around him, they noted that even though they were uneducated, they could tell that they'd been with Jesus. I pray that's true of me, that that's what people will say is, okay, she hasn't been to seminary, she doesn't have an advanced degree, but boy, Jesus is there. I want people to see Jesus. The glow on Moses' face faded away, just like the law. So Paul contrasts what we behold in the new covenant in Christ. The old covenant was limited, it was temporary, the people couldn't keep it, and so its glory eventually faded away. But the glory of God's grace in Christ and the new covenant just grows brighter and brighter. And Paul wrote, Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So I want you to, as you leave, I want you to think about Jesus' glory. As he got closer to the time to die, Jesus prayed for God to restore the glory that was rightfully his. In John 17, 5, he prayed, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. And so God answered this prayer by raising Jesus from the dead in a glorious resurrection body. And this is what proved his ministry as our perfect mediator. Jesus was declared with power to be the son of God by what? His resurrection from the dead. So see the glory of our better Moses, our mediator, Jesus Christ. God said he made his light shine in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Now Paul also applied this image of the veil to the lost Jews of his day who still believed that salvation could be had by keeping the law. Their hearts were hardened and they were covered with this sort of veil that kept them from seeing the grace of Jesus. And he said in 2 Corinthians 3, for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because it's only through Christ it is taken away. So it's through Jesus and in Jesus that we see the glory and the grace of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's Hebrews 1. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Beholding Jesus, beholding God in his glory should be transformational for us. 2 Corinthians 3 says, we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Let's pray. Oh Father, we do want to see more of you. We want to see your glory. The glory is of the only begotten Son full of grace and truth. How amazing it is that you showed your glory to Moses as much as he could bear hiding in the cleft of the rock. I thank you that we can still see your grace and your glory by studying your word. In fact, we know more of your goodness and more of your glory and more of your grace than Moses did because we know you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for your sovereign 
grace upon grace upon grace and for your mercy that knows no bounds and no end. Amen.